1: Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Jade McGlynn, author of Russia's War, published in March by Polity Press. Quote, there can be no justification for what Russia is doing now or what it has been doing in Ukraine since 2014, she writes. And yet many Russians do, do justify, even approve the war. It is their war, Russia's war, not Putin's alone. A year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine and nine years since its annexation of Crimea and occupation of Ukraine's far east, why are Russians still behind this brutal and disastrous project? Where are the mass protests? Why hasn't Putin been removed? In her new book, based on a decade of research into Russia's politics of memory and propaganda, and close to 60 post-invasion interviews with prominent Russians, Dr. McGlynn explains why. Jade McGlynn is a research fellow at the department of war studies at King's college, London. She completed a fill at Oxford, where she also lectured on Russia a frequent contributor to the BBC, Deutsche Welle, The Telegraph and The Spectator. Her next book, Memory Makers, The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia, will be published by Bloomsbury Press in June. Jade, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned in the intro there, you've got another book coming out in just three months. And uh, in the introduction to this book, you talk about the strain of getting two books out and, and this one being done in just five months. Did you feel you had to get this one done uh, and Specifically about the war to coincide with the anniversary of the invasion.
2: No, no, not at all. Um, they they weren't written in parallel. I had um, submitted uh, memory makers um, before before the war even even began. But as ever with a book project and and with the the, the PhD, um, there was a lot of material in there um, that that I hadn't used and that sort of played on my mind, but I sort of put it to the back of my mind, not least because I, I had a baby. Um, there's two months before the the full scale um invasion occurred. And um it was really I had I had no intention of of, of writing the book. I, I didn't I you know I didn't particularly want to write this book, but I realized that that everybody was going to be writing books. Now lot of it bluntly was going to be based on on opinion and I I felt that I had um, I had, you know, important research that had been conducted that had something meaningful to add to the debate.
1: Well, yeah, I think it does do that. Cause I mean, the question people are constantly asking is why, as I said at the beginning, why do Russians not stand up and do something about this and what is the, what is the thinking behind it? I've got one other question on process though. How did you pick your interviewees and how did you conduct the conversations?
2: mm mm-hmm. So um, I picked um those interviewees. There's a mix. There's obviously um a lot of ordinary people whose names I chose to pseudonymize, even if they were happy, um, to be named because that seemed ethic more ethical. Um, but and there were also sort of more prominent Russians where it were their their positions were already uh, public knowledge. So and and often these were quite pro-war positions, and they're not always and i in general i picked comments um from prominent russians that i felt were reflective of i suppose like a school of thought either within influential intellectual circles or within the public at large or because they i felt the analysis was strong from um from ordinary russians those people are often people that i have long-standing relationships with and so um you know that i've kind of I suppose that I've been in conversation with about this and, and similar topics since since probably twenty fifteen, um, if if not even slightly, slightly earlier in some Pieces.
1: Yeah, well, at, com- I mean, coming to the book itself, at the heart of the book is what you call a paradox, whereby Russians regard this war as quote existential but ignorable. Can you explain how this is possible?
2: Um, yes, um, so. When I talk about um th- that paradox, I mean I don't um think that um I don't think that um most Russians do see the, the war as um as existential. Um and, and I make that argument sort of sort of just before this quote. I think I do think that the Russian government, which has made a, a big effort and has, has fallen for its own propaganda here, I think, um, has conflated itself with the nation. And I think that it sees the war as existential. But if we look at some of the quite interesting opinion polls that show that Russian, um, you know, sort of 60 odd percent of Russians would, um, you know, be happy to continue, well, would uh, support continuing the war um, you know, over the longer term, but a similar number would also support peace negotiations um, it's tomorrow, it reminds us that often for many Russians, they will interpret such questions as, not what is your own personal view, but would you support Putin or the government in doing this? And so, in a way, it's um, that sense that they of a lack of, of political agency. Um, but where the war, so where the war is existential, is, is for the Putin regime. They may they may see themselves as Russia. I don't think that there's any under any sort of rational understanding where this war is existential um for for russia as as a state clearly it's existential for for ukraine um but the the more that there is this insistence in the propaganda um that that this is the case and that you know sort of russia cannot exist cannot be whole or, or ontologically secure without ukraine um the the more this is likely um to to turn the the terrible fantasy into reality
1: your description of about how the government exerts power is is really interesting. Uh, and you say that that you know people people talk casually about the, the state being or the the regime being fascist or totalitarian, um, uh, mm. whereas in fact, it's more just of an autocracy or it was before. and you you describe this through the framework of of a spectrum of allies model, mm-hmm. um essentially rule through a sort of form of apathy. Can you talk us through that idea and how it applies to Russia?
2: Yes, so I very much am still of the opinion, I mean I don't like the term totalitarian anyway, but even if we say okay, that's that's a workable shorthand for referring to a place like the Soviet Union, under Stalin, or Nazi Germany, where they almost want to reinvent man, that's not the case for Russia. I mean, you could not make any sorts of comparisons with Stalinist era repressions or indeed with, with Soviet level ambitions for, for recreating and recasting mankind um Russia is an authoritarian country where you have a sort of one man or a small elite um, that's, you know, if we use Lindsay's, um uh, sort of definition, you have one man a small elite that have a lot of power that's often ill-defined but predictable. Um, they don't really try to mobilize people. They don't have a guiding ideology um, and they use um, repression and other measures to, to keep uh, political opposition uh, manageable. And the, this is where I find the spectrum of allies, and um, well, I, I hope I, I I think that it is a contribute contribution um to the debate of of how the propaganda works because again going back to these maybe tendencies of in democratic countries of of what life is like in an authoritarian country sometimes you often get the impression that you know sort of if if only Russian people would hear the truth then they would. Um, completely change their minds, then they would know. But obviously that's that's not the case. And, and I also don't think it's the case that, that people are brainwashed either. Um, if, you know, 40 million Russians have telegram, they can use it. It's completely uncensored. They don't need a VPN to use it. Um, and yet and yet, 19, 18 sorry, of the top 20 um, political telegram channels are for a war. And um, even the the awful censorship that does exist now in Russian media, it's I mean it's far from from totalizing. It's, you still have access to YouTube, but that only came in on the third of the third of March, um, very early March, in twenty twenty two. I mean the war started in twenty fourteen. People have had access to, to a lot of media all that time. So I think as well there needs to be a sense of proportion. But if we go onto the spectrum of allies, my, my main argument here is essentially that um the Russian government is not interested, of course, in trying to convince the acting opposition they even want to make them apathetic or just get rid of them. Um and of course there's a range of ways from encouraging them to leave to sort of harrowing forms of of poison, um, as as we know. Then with the apathetic people, they try to sort of nudge them along. Or the propaganda, the state-aligned um, media tries to nudge them along into a sense of my country, right or wrong. Um, so that idea that maybe I don't 100% agree with everything that the government is doing or everything about the war, but it's my country. I don't have many others, um, and you know I'm I'm going to stand by. And I have to say, I know quite a few people where. Sanctions and, in particular, sort of the the framing of sanctions and the the sort of lines around Russophobia, um, <clears throat> and Russian government's claims of phobia did help to to nudge them from the, the apathetic into the "my country right or wrong" category. And then people who are in the "my country right or wrong" category, they may over time be nudged into. The sort of ritual support category, and those are the people who where the propaganda narratives they resonate, they land, um, and you know people have these views, but they have them and they sort of support the government rather than supporting a specific policy happening to be in alignment with the government. That is to say, they stay within an acceptable sphere of support, and what I mean by that is that the government, unlike perhaps in a um, you know for a pressure group which would love active Support the Kremlin is very suspicious of active support. This is why um, it um, has. I mean, we've seen arrests of people who've come out protesting for the war, as in in support of the war, um, just celebrating the government, and um, they. It's because such people are a bit unmanageable because when things don't go to plan, and a lot hasn't gone plan in this war, um, you can't necessarily rely on such people because their loyalty. Um or it's not for the government, it's for the cause.
1: Yeah, you you do make it clear a couple of times that you you understand why people don't want to protest. You know, that you, you talk about this one mm. woman who, who I can't remember what it was now, but one individual protested and she ended up doing ten years uh, in a in a labor colony. But at the same time, you make this really interesting point about um, the five hundred thousand people who've left since last August, and there have been no mass protests among this diaspora. Um, how do you explain that?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose just quickly to, to pick up on the, the Sushma yeah. Swakanyanka point. So she 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 is facing that she's still. Um, Sort of awaiting um, trials, but that is what she's facing. Um, is is ten years? Um, she hasn't been sentenced yet, and her, her case is um, is is ongoing right now. But um, yes, so that sort of that sense of apathy of oh, it's not going to make much difference, and of course, you know, things like opinion polls and that sense that everybody else isn't on your side, plus that contributes. Um, you know, to, to a sense of the, the pointlessness of protesting alongside the fear, and you know, I have to be honest. With you, especially, I think for parents, when you see, you know, there's been a number of cases where children have been taken off parents and sent to orphanages. As somebody who who spent um, some time working in a Russian orphanage, uh, I, I have to say I don't, I wouldn't protest the war if there was that risk on my children. Um, so. I think it's important. I hope I do this in the book. I think it's important to sometimes pose ourselves these questions because it's very easy to sit in the UK and ask why aren't people protesting? But I think it's important to pose those questions of what would you honestly do if if things were the levels of risk, you know, for for you? And um, I, I I hope my answer there has, has been honest. Um, now, in terms of the protests abroad, um, I have to say since since. On the one-year anniversary, there were a number of protests, um, though I'm not sure. I think it would be difficult to describe any of them as mass protests, but they were sort of a bit larger in number, and that was encouraging. In general, um, I think the reason why we haven't seen these protests is because, and, and this is a point that comes through in the book, I think there are two elements to this answer, one of them is that the oppositional well, actually maybe there's three. One, not everybody who left is necessarily opposed to the war. They may just not like sanctions. I mean, that's entirely, you know, reasonable. Or maybe they don't like the means of the war, but they're not necessarily against the ends, i.e., sort of destroying all high Ukraine. Um, secondly, um the opposition is defined, or the Russian position and diaspora has always, you know, struggled to become a coherent force, even if we look back at the sort of emigre um, communities and they've always struggled to really kind of adapt into the politics of the different communities, have struggled to adapt into the politics of the host community and have often sort of pursued their own ends um, which gradually over time, uh, with the Soviet Union not collapsing, obviously you know, for quite a while um, that um, you know, they became increasingly less relevant. And I do think there's there's a worry that that could happen again. Um because there's this sense of everybody sitting in a waiting room waiting for the, the Putin regime to collapse. And you know, what about if it if it doesn't? Will be? Um and then thirdly, I think the issue is that this Ukrainophobia that exists within Russian culture, I think it runs through um a fair amount of strands of, of Russian liberal thought as well. Um, I think there's a real social racism, um, as um the sociologist Jeremy Morris calls it, that sense of um that there's two Russians, that there's one enlightened Western Russian that's European, and then there's this other sort of, you know, a horde of Russians who are unlightened, and, you know, they have this slave mentality. And I find that distinction, i I find it. I find it quite repulsive, if I'm honest. Um, and I think it doesn't get us anywhere to understanding, you know, Russians, um and and the broad mass of Russian people, because there are just two groups of good Russians, bad Russians. Um, and that sort of thinking is is one of the reasons why um, you know, until Navalny it was a struggle um for much of the liberal opposition to, to cut through and split to people.
1: Yeah, in fact you 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 mentioned the points. Uh, after a number of the interviews, that you're infuriated by people who are more bothered by the way Tolstoy is being treated rather than the bombing of uh, uh, Ukrainian universities. Is, is that something you came across frequently? Or... Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes, it really is. And I have to say, also, not just by Russians, and, and maybe for some background for listeners. So I told myself Russian when I was 12, because I wanted to be able to read Dostoevsky in the original. I say in the book, I, in, to my mind, Russian literature is unparalleled. I mean it, I think it's wonderful. I certainly don't want Russian literature cancel at all. Um I taught Russian I, I studied Russian literature also that I then went on to teach that to teach the sort of Russian literature intellectual like, history course. Um sort of modules. Rather. Um so I'm you know, I'm coming at this from a position not from the outside, but very much from the inside of that um of that Russianist space, if we can call it that. And um I I find it utterly infuriating that there is this huge focus on whether or not this or that Dostoevsky course has been cancelled um in the West, but also particularly where there's a focus on it in Ukraine because I I mean, you know, they first of all I admire the the chutzpah of somebody who feels they can sit in judgment over a country that is defending itself from a sort of genocidal onslaught aimed at destroying their culture and their their identity. Um and, and want to talk about, you know, why they've cancelled the, you know, Tchaikovsky or whatnot. Um but secondly, when we come back to look just at the Western side, I don't really see any evidence of this happening in a serious way. What I do see, and I find this very um <laughs> very worrying is a tendency in some countries to target individual Russians who don't have any official links or anything to do with the regime. So I know in Germany, for example, there have been several cases where students have been told that they're not welcome to come and do their PhD um, in, in Germany simply because they are Russian. And I think this is outrageous, especially when we think of some of the other people who may be welcome you know, in Germany and their links to German businesses. And, um, and it's not just Germany. I don't want to pick on Germany. It's not an anti-German point. Um, you know There are many other European countries doing similar things. So again, I find this this idea of talking around abstract abstract things. I mean, bluntly, I, I love Dostoevsky. I, I think everybody should read Dostoevsky, but Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's dead. He's been dead for a long time. And it's important that we worry about the living. I mean, this is not um, of all of the issues that are, are completely urgent to deal with. Dostoevsky
1: isn't one of them. Mm. Well, I mean, this does bring us to the the broad question which you you answer in this book throughout this book, which is around Russian exceptionalism and how essential Ukraine is to that self-definition. Can you talk us through that and and touch on this this intriguing character, uh, Lev Kobolev? Uh,
2: so, um, uh-huh. So with I think one of the elements that's sometimes overlooked, particularly um, when it comes to defining Russia's war as a war of imperialism, is this particular obsession and the particular place of Ukraine within Russia's own sort of social and political imagination, if 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 you will, of itself and, and of the country surrounding it. Um so um of course that's not to say it isn't an imperial war, but there's it's an imperial war um, plus something else. <laughs> Plus a bit extra, um, and we saw in Vladimir Putin's twenty twenty-one essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. You know, he sort of depicted Ukraine as a non-nation, a region, a subset of a border of a borderland of Russia. But worse than that, he depicts Ukrainian identity, uh, sort of like, um, like Ukraine or like Ukrainianness, as a weapon, as a weapon, something created artificially by the West. Use to destroy Russia, and this mindset, I think, in this opinion, is very important to, to understanding this sense that Ukrainian nationalism, which is essentially anything um, in, in this in this interpretation, is anything that doesn't want to be politically subjugated and controlled by by Moscow. You, they view Ukrainian nationalism as a, a sort of a direct affront, but also a direct threat to to Russia's conception of itself as a great power. Um, and Russia's conception of itself as a separate civilization, and there are many, many different reasons for this. Um, but one of the key reasons goes back to the many disputes around um, Kiev and Rus, and and sort of the sort of historiographical disputes of who is the um, who is the inheritor um, of of Kiev and Rus. And it's quite central, you know, even going back to sort of Ivan the Third and the takeover of Novgorod, it's quite essential to to tellings of Russian history that that Russia and that Moscow is perceived as, as the inheritor of, of this territory. And I think if we um, go back to the, um, um have the, um, the, the dissident, the famous Soviet dissident that you referenced and I talk about, and I draw very heavily on Daria Mattingly's very um, fascinating, um, impeccable research into, into the Holodomor. This I suppose links our earlier discussion around points of of, of liberalism and, and also broader attitudes, not just in the pro-Putin sort of um what historic pro-Putin majority towards Ukraine, but also among those who might see themselves as or might present themselves as as Western. And this I'll for the obviously a lot of people won't have read the book, so um I'll just sort of briefly explain who on earth I'm talking about. So um, Lyev um Kupolev was a um like a famous dissident um fated by Western intellectuals, Russian intelligentsia, very active in the Soviet human rights movements, um, after he was imprisoned because he protested violations of, of German civilians' rights after World War II. Um, so seen as sort of a, a moral um high ground, still is, still is, very much so. Um, but long before all of that um in 1929. Um Liev was working in the um countryside of Urfkarpiv oblast, um, and um in some areas that are now part of the French Oblast as well. And he was um facilitating, he was taking part in the Soviet policy of of collectivization. And um if we look back at his memoirs as Dr. Mattingly, as, as Dr. Mastignly has done, we see that there's a lot of things that don't add up. You know he says, oh, okay, well there was no gunshots fired, there was no sort of blood spill. Um, and um he doesn't mention his involvement at all in, in such sort of this possession. Um and he just talks about the non one nonviolent eviction of, of a priest, which doesn't really make sense when we can see from the archives that Neb had to flee the village with the chairman of the local collective farm and others. Because of you know the unrest that was happening, and the residents were throwing stones at the group, and he was unable to return and then went to um, the village um, near um Prahovka in Kherson Oblast where there's been a significant amount of fighting and the issue here is that in these memoirs not only um or dr kolev not only demonstrates no regret for his involvement, but he actually, whereas others tried to sort of save the children um, from from starving. Um, so, for example, he claims um, during when he was in Kachowska that he didn't see anybody starving to death at the time, which seems very unlikely given that, um, according to Dr. Two thousand and fifty people died in a small village of Kabivka, between 1932 and 1933, and four orphanages had to be opened in the village. But somehow he worked enforcing collectivization and didn't notice this. And he continued to demand the last grains from families, you know, a lot of others are on record as having tried to help the starving children or found a way just to escape from doing the job. But actually Liev decided to return to what he referred to as the grain front in, in March 1933. And when asked sort of later on, oh, why, he, um, which wasn't something he was asked very often because people didn't see it as a huge issue, he just said, well, I was a true believer and I really thought I was saving the nation, but I mean, I don't care what you think you believe. If you can see starving, crying children with round bellies from, from starvation, if you watch them die, I, I don't understand how this man can still be known as a great humanist or a wonderful dissident who represents the highest deals of humanity um when the mass killing of the Ukrainian peasantry provoked zero empathy in him and you know not only that he he was part of it I mean he he obviously participated in it so what does that say about society and even the liberal section of society when participating in a man-made famine um that killed millions of ukrainians this doesn't prevent your access to these sort of allowed pools of, of humanist heroes I I think it's an extent, I think it shows the extent to which Ukrainian suffering, when inconvenient, is seen as ignorable or seen as something that can be sacrificed at
0: the altar of Russian storytelling about themselves. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Yeah, I mean, in that respect, you, you refer to Putin, I, I, I don't remember, you either refer to Putin or Putinism as historical, as, as a historical nationalist rather than as a nationalist. Mm. And you you stress the importance, the critical importance, of this whole narrative of the Great Patriotic War uh, that conveniently starts in 1941. C- could you could you talk us through that? the the central importance of this um, of this national myth or national story.
2: Uh huh. So, um, th- I mean, this is something that I explore in much much more detail in in Memory Makers, that is out in in June, but very broadly. Um, it's not just the the history um, itself, though. That is very much um, sort of under underpinned by the notion that um, you know Russia has always been a great power, a special power since its inheritance given root since it became the third Rome after the fall of of, of Constantinople. But um, that then during the Great Patriotic War, which is the name for the um Soviet Nazi war the, the Nazi war against the Soviet Union um that they sort of reiterated this right and um they or reasserted this right. And um they, <clears throat> they the the post-Jalta settlement, which of course gave um Russia sort of um a d- a dominion over over its what it would call its near abroad um, or what Russians would call their near abroad to countries like um, in in Eastern Europe, the the Baltics, and Ukraine, of course. Um, that this is something that to, if to not allow Russia, this is actually to disrespect the memory of World War II It's actually you know to be a Nazi, and that's why you see Russians sometimes calling people Nazis you know, for reasons that don't seem entirely clear. Their their understanding of Nazism is very linked to this, and it's. I mean, we can talk in more detail, but. Essentially, it's linked to the de ideologization of, of communism under Putin, where it's very nostalgized. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union, but reading the narratives, and I have to say, I've read, read tens of thousands of articles um, in Russian media on this, um, you, would, you would almost forget that this was a communist period, because there's no real reference to the actual communism. Instead, it's just seen as the Soviet Union as a great power, um, as a sort of stable force that represented both a threat and an alternative to the West, um, but the communism is kind of glossed over. And this sense of national exceptionalism is incredibly important, but so too is this the constant specter of of trauma and tragedy and times of trouble, such as the 1990s or the revolutions and the civil war of you know sort of from 1917 to 1922, or indeed the original um, time of troubles um, following um, issues of succession to the throne that that um, long story short led to a brief occupation by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, so this idea that when Russia is weak, um, its enemies from the west will take advantage and sort of so further chaos. So Russia the state of Russia, the state must, must always be strong. It's
1: plays an important role. Mm-hmm. Well, coming more up to date, um, I, I knew NATO's Kosovo intervention had been important in restarting the, the cold war, but until I read your book, I hadn't realized how fundamental it was to the reemergence of illiberalism and revanchism in Russia. C- can you explain? Oh,
2: uh-huh. uh-huh. yes, you're right. Um, so, and it's, it's, I mean, admittedly, not sort of funny in a in a hard, hard way, but it's it's odd because I don't think it's really remembered at all much. Say in, in the UK, I mean, I happen to have always been interested in it because when I studied Russian, I studied Serbian as as part of my kind of Slavonic languages degree. But um, so I I've always kind of understood. Um, maybe more about it, but um, in Russia in particular, the bombing of, of Yugoslavia in, in 1999 um, is a crucial point of departure in their geopolitical mind map. Um, and the the mainstream Russian understanding of, of the conflict is, is quite different from that of many Western countries who would see it as a humanitarian intervention that prevented or was even a response to an ongoing genocide. Um, and there's, you know, in Western accounts, there's very little emphasis on the lack of UN security accounts and the approval for airstrikes or the loss of civilian lives or the use of depleted uranium um, or the bombings of, um, you know, the, the media um, the buildings and both the the Chinese embassy, of course, which the, the Chinese obviously remember. Um, so, if you look at the Russian side, you would or the sort of Russian historical, say, for example, the, 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 the history portals or the history yeah. websites website yeah. in Russia, you would understand that the crisis in Kosovo was not caused by um, Slobodan and Roshavich, um deliberately stirring up nationalist tensions, but really by the USA, by NATO and some EU countries who were exploiting Russia's post-Soviet weakness and deliberately destroying Serbia, um, with whom it has this kind of historical um, relationship. And um I think where what's important here, and there's something that I really don't think is, is referenced um enough, is that of course, um, you know, a lot of the language around NATO um, is an exaggeration and it focuses on this sense that almost NATO has moved into Eastern Europe rather than asking why everybody on Europe's border why everybody on Russia's borders wanted to join NATO. But it is worth bearing in mind that you know the first phase of NATO expansion started in 1999, so in February, and you had Poland, Hungary, and Czech Republic joining. And then I think it was two, maybe three weeks later when <laughs> the first military operation in its history. And so with this expansion, we have NATO going from a defensive to an aggressive alliance, at least in the Russian perspective. And I have to be honest, I can see, I can see, I can see where that perspective comes from. And so even though we can all say until we're blue in the face, like, okay, that um, you know, um, NATO is a defensive alliance, if you look at it from the Russian perspective, and you don't have to agree, but it's just important to understand their perspective, they see it as NATO began to expand, and then it began to go to war, and it had never been to war before. So I guess the, the, the it's paranoia around NATO, in my view, but I I definitely see why that paranoia has been stoked
1: yeah i mean I, i'd never made the connection between that first enlargement and and the uh and the attack in kosovo before it was <laughs> uh mm-hmm. you, you yeah as you say you could see why why some people would think uh would make that connection mm-hmm. so coming, coming to the to the current war um two things you wrote really jumped out at me uh, and i'll start with this one um you said that Russian officials thought the invasion would be a more complex version of the Kazakhstan intervention. And this was this was kind of what Silvia Berlusconi got into trouble for saying a few months ago. The, the idea that it, it would just be a surgical intervention into Kiev, mm. quote, denazification installation of a friendly government, and out again within four months. That, that's amazing. I mean, is that is that something you came across frequently in your conversations?
2: Yes. Yes, definitely. And um to be honest, I think sometimes it's—I mean, this happens naturally with a war that now everybody laughs and says, "Oh, I can't believe they thought they were going to take Kiev in three days." And I don't actually think it's absurd as it seems. The absurd that the the idea that's absurd is that they could hold Ukraine or by Ukraine because Ukraine because clearly Ukrainian attitudes towards Russia and towards their own future and self determination had changed dramatically since twenty fourteen. However, you know, if we look back, and Jack Watling and um, Sasha Daniluk Luke have done some some really wonderful work on this at, at Rusi. If we look back at actually, you know, what was happening during that period, you now there's been a bit of, of distance. Um, you know, if the Russians had taken war Airport, the situation could really have been quite different. They bec- they came very very close to, to Kiev. We're talking, you know, like yeah. handful of miles away from from the city centre. Um, they were, of course, in Kiev um, Oblast, in Kiev region, um, as we know from from the the awful uh, massacres that happened in Bucha and um, and other towns um, in, t- towards the north of the capital. So, um, I think this perhaps not as, as as laughable as it may seem. Perhaps if Zelensky had been as weak as the Russians thought, but, you know, he, he sometimes. In general, I'm not a fan of the the great man theory of history, but. Obviously every now and again you do have a leader who does just change history. And I think that if Zelensky had fled, this would have been and um, you know, there were plans for obviously governments in exile and, and office of evacuation that were drawn up. And if he had taken them, I think we would be in an incredibly different situation. Um so so there's that one point. But yes, um people did see it as um as um I suppose, uh, a pretty quick operation um, that, that they would get away with. Um, and, I mean, we saw we saw this by the fact that, you know, a lot of the troops who were sent were really administrators. They were administrative troops, you know, that were there to administer administer the city and, um,
1: you know, incredibly a high proportion of them were killed. I mean, this is a huge intelligence failure. I mean, do, do you think it's the equivalent of when You know the americans went into iraq and they had essentially been talking to people that they thought were representative um of iraqi opinion but actually these were people who had a sort of self-interest was it was it a similar situation with the russians and quote friendly ukrainians who were telling them something that basically wasn't true
2: yeah it was quite similar i think you could definitely draw parallels um so firstly it was an ignorance and a kind of deliberate arrogance, like one of arrogance. um of you know there are very few people in russia i mean pretty much my understanding though i'm happy to be corrected but my understanding from, from somebody who knows more about these things than i do is that there were not any areas you know within the the fsb that where people you had people who were ukrainian linguists who spoke ukraine you know, and really was like speci- spoke Ukrainian really, and were real specialists in the country because it was this sense of, but Ukraine is just Russian. <laughs> so why would we need to, to study it? Which you know, stands in really stark contrast to some of the specialism that you have in countries that Russia perceives as the real abroad rather than the near abroad. Um, so that was one aspect of it is just, they just won. Um, they didn't engage properly. They didn't take their enemy seriously. And we know that General uh, General Zaluzhny, who's head of the uh, commander in chief of the the Ukrainian armed forces, you know he has studied um, he has studied his um, counterpart um, uh, um writings. You know he kind of knows parts of them off by heart, and that's obviously served him well. I think it always serves you well to to treat your opponent um, to take your opponent seriously. So there's one there's that aspect, but there's also another aspect which is. I've been speaking to some people, um, particularly from from Kharkiv, um, around the topic, so obviously there's a lot of corruption within the Russian system. And what you've had was that were people with a Russian sort of like paying, you know, the security services paying certain people um, and creating these kind of circles um, that they felt were representative. And I mean, one of the issues is that everybody always thinks their views are kind of mainstream or centrist. And, a typical of what people in their region <clears throat> so it may not necessarily have always been lying but there was they were given a lot of money some of these kind of people um collaborators i think is probably the right term and um to help kind of build networks and whatnot but my understanding is that a lot of these people are the money on like jeeps like so kind of <laughs> t- taking ladies out <laughs> and and whatnot um and basically being a bit flash and you know, the money well quite clearly the money didn't go on creating networks in some in some cases it i mean there's there's really quite to specific give some of these uh details that i'm talking about but i mean in some cases it, it did appear to work um and we shouldn't underestimate that there are people who are still pro-russian in in ukraine and, and it often comes down to a matter of they don't want to part with with that identity. They can't deal with the cognitive dissonance that that might entail. Um, but um and, you know, and of course you always have the cynical people who are doing it just for for power or or greed or what. Um, but um, I suppose I think the, the main reason is they just did not expect they underestimated zelensky they continue to underestimate zelensky um and um i think they un- they overestimated how weak the west had become um and how incoherent and also um they just hugely underestimated how much Ukraine had really become, you know, a coherent nation. And I think in some ways that goes back to to Putin's misunderstanding of nationhood in general, um, which again I write about in the book, but he sees nation, you know, in its primordial sense as an essence. And this is why you kind of get this real obsession with history that there's this essence that continues throughout Russian history. It doesn't matter if it's the imperial, you know, the Tsarist era, or doesn't matter if it's the Soviet era or the post-Soviet era, you have this historical Russia. Whereas in actual fact, you know, nations are continuously reconstructed. The idea of what a nation is and say, for example, what Britain is, that's continuously reconstructed. The Britain,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, as I understand it, would be a very different Britain, you know, to, during Queen Victoria's time. And, um, and that's entirely natural and, and is often, you know, a positive thing. And, and the same thing happened with Ukraine. It just, over time, it, it just constructed a really robust and coherent nation that's, I think, certainly a lot more robust than many um, nations um, in in Western Europe.
1: Well, the, the second um, the second point you make about the the war itself um, that really struck me was your observation that quote most diplomats and Ukrainian officials are not unduly bothered about Crimea, and you you also say that before February twenty twenty two, they were even reluctant to retake the autonomous republic. So. Obviously, this is critical to how the war will end. Do do you think it will end at the pre-24-2 borders?
2: Well, I guess there's one important thing here um, that what officials and diplomats might think is not necessarily how the population thinks. And I think because of the nature and the intensity of the war being waged against them, it's probably quite important that Ukrainians, like Ukrainian popular opinion, um it sees um I, I guess total victory as the end result. Um because i I guess psychologically it could become quite difficult to fight for, okay, we'll just get to here and then we can sit down, and have some good you know, if that's not that's not really it's very difficult to gear yourself up for an existential battle where you're losing a lot of people, a lot of your best and youngest um people, especially men of course. Um you know for the sake of having holding a few better cards at the negotiation table it's just not a motivating factor so i think there's that one aspect um i think it'd be very difficult to to uh to sell that as it were to, to the ukrainian people right now and uh, i think it'd be a brave person who tried to do that um or a, a silly person um in terms of what i think it's possible. I I don't think that the war is going to end anytime soon. Um, I I don't think that it's. I don't think that Russia will be able to get the the four territories plus Crimea that they insist that they've annexed. Um, so I, and I think that would that appears to be the the basic minimum of, of what the Russians are putting out. And even still, if they did that, it would really just be for buying the time because Russia, in its current kind of guise, is not going to accept Ukraine as a sort of politically independent state with its own sovereign choices. Um, So there's that aspect. And of course, the Ukrainian side, I think in any discussion about how the war is going to end, I, I become unbelievably frustrated. So I can't imagine how Ukrainians feel by just the refusal to accept the agency of Ukrainians. And they are not they I guess the way they feel is it's not sort of a romantic like, we'll fight on, you know, it's just we have to fight because if we don't fight then we don't exist. So you know, I guess from their point of view is either way they die. Hmm. So they 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 have everything to fight for. Um so in terms of how the war will end, I, I mean, I, I set out a sort of um, idea for for Western policymakers at the end around a notion of containment too, like, 2.0, where we um, we support Ukraine to get back to its um, uh, pre 24th of February 22 orders, plus even if it's just a hamlet, just as that kind of symbolic gesture that Russia has lost from doing this full scale war and not gained just in that most obvious territorial sense and then um, we just try to we just move to a strong policy of deterrence um you know where we bring ukraine into nato we do everything we do everything to protect ukraine and we turn ukraine into this sort of 21st century west berlin and we focus in on ourselves and you know use um ukraine's incredible sort of heroism really um as as a means to to maybe kickstart what it what the West even means um and the commitment to to values that to be honest if you had long started to sound like a not especially funny joke in the in the words of certain politicians. And and I feel like Ukraine, I mean I don't know how it is for people, but certainly for me, and I tend to be quite a dry sort of person, but I've found myself very inspired um by by the Ukrainians. It sort of reminds me of something, you know, sort of from literature almost. Um, but, um, but yes, yeah, so I don't know how that said to go back to being dry. I I, I don't know how. I'm um, I'm not sure how realistic that that um, that approach is, and also I don't think that policymakers are necessarily, um, you know, especially up for it. And that's why I suppose, going back to your original question about sort of why write why write this book. I do think that if we promote this idea that it's just Putin's war, it's. I'm not saying I, I'm not arguing against it because it's unfair. Yeah, it is unfair, but it's not. The point. and I'm not arguing against it because I want to sit as as moral judge or juror. I'm arguing against it because it makes for bad policy, because it misunderstands the situation. It misunderstands then what's possible.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, coming to uh, Putinism itself, the regime, you, you seem convinced it will eventually collapse. And you say, when it does collapse, it will be quick, unexpected, and probably miserable. Um, what, what's your best guess as to how, the, how, how this happens and the shape it takes?
2: Absolutely as, as good as anybody else's guess, really. I think with um, these sort of, well, <laughs> I mean, if if we look at the data... We know that um, personalist autocracies of the type that that the Russia clearly is, um, and, and we know that they are much more likely to descend into into chaos um, and um, into you know quite quite into violent transitions. Um, and I have to say, the proliferation of, of private military contractors, the proliferation of, of new security firms, and and the exponential growth of crime, you violent crime in Russia carries um, very disturbing echoes of the 1990s. And just as in the 1990s, you're going to have a lot of men sort of returning or traumatized from from war and you're going to have even more because um, even more men have died um, in this war than died over the nine years of the Afghanistan, of the, the Soviet Union's war against Afghanistan. So um, I don't even, if we look at both the data, but also just maybe things you don't need data for like it's not great if you have violent criminals who've then been really you've also been a bit traumatized by war and loads of other people just traumatized by war it's not great um set up for, for a transition to a nice kind of institution building a nice liberal democracy especially when there's a culture of of denigrating these things because of very bad experiences and in, in the 1990s so i i there's definitely scope for a positive approach but um, some of the, some of the Russian liberal opposition, I think are, and definitely not the answer. I mean, some of these Congresses that have been going on, um, and where you see people talking about, you know, the, um, ordinary Russian citizens, you yeah, know, outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, it's like the dregs, you know, it's sort of like yokels and idiots who just need to be reprogrammed. I, I, I mean, what a way to get someone to vote for you, right? <laughs> I've heard it
1: Yeah. Well, um to close because this is a podcast about books, as usual I've asked my guest to choose two to recommend to listeners. Um Jade, what have you chosen?
2: Mm-hmm. So the first book um is um about The Naked Year or The Bad Year. Um it's actually it's it's sort of a semi-autobiographical fiction book, but um it's about the the Russian Civil War. And um, the author sort of travels around, and he tries to use not only sort of his descriptive powers, but also, um, you know, the structure, the form um, itself of, of the language and um, typop- even the typography to to uh, convey just the the horror. And and the chaos of war and and its impact on the individual, which I think even you know in some of my comments there, it's quite easy to to overlook and to think of you know heroic sacrifice, but um, of course there's one hundred percent that element um, in in Ukrainian fighting, but also. You know, it's just grim. It's just being in mud, and it's just an awful, awful experience. I think in recognising their heroism, we shouldn't forget the the toll the, the that takes on on a, the war takes on a human
1: being. Okay, and your second book?
2: My second book is Sean Walker's The Long Hanover. Um, which I I mean it was a very well reviewed and, and well received book anyway, but I still feel is sometimes under underappreciated um in terms of the books about Buddhism, because it's a really wonderful exploration of um, you know, the process, um of how history was made relevant. And also, you know, the extent to which there was a grassroots demand for this, um, for a need to feel proud after perceived humiliations of the 1990s. And he does it in a really accessible and impressionistic way. And also with loads of puns around hangovers that are very clever. Um, But as well, it's it's also excellent research. And I think, um, you know, for a very long time, if people ever ask me, "Oh, what's the book? The book, if I had to read one book to to understand what's happening um, in in Putin's Russia," I I always used to to re- recommend that book.
1: Right, great. Well, neither of those have been chosen before, so thank you for that. Uh, today, I've been talking to Jade McGlynn about her Russia's War, published by Polity in March. Jade, thanks again for coming on.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: You <laughs>